Hey guys, just wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening to Sidebar Forever. If you like the show, please subscribe to us at sidebarforever.com as well as share episodes of the podcast on your social media. That way, new listeners can find us as well. For an American comic book creator to be known both as a writer and an artist is to be an auteur, especially in the mainstream. As a matter of fact, the title writer-artist grew to prominence in the 1970s and 80s with such artists as Jack Kirby, Jim Starlin, John Byrne, Walt Simonson, and Frank Miller. Be it a miniseries like The Dark Knight Returns or a multi-year run on The Mighty Thor or The Fantastic Four, these creators, along with others, wrote and drew flagship characters at both Marvel and DC, and fans ate it up to tremendous sales and acclaim. However, the early 2000s saw commercial comics begin to shift away from the writer-artist. Superstar writers, quote-unquote, became the focus of fandom and publishers, and popular artists like Daniel Warren Johnson and Sean Gordon Murphy are still given the creative freedom of writing and drawing certain mainstream projects, but if one is interested in telling the entire story, then one usually does so with their own creations at an independent publisher like Image or otherwise. So what brought about this sea change? How does the writer-artist approach to comic book making affect production? And Will we ever again see a return to the cartoonist-like work ethic of the writer-artist in the mainstream? I'm Adrian Johnson. Swain is with me today as we unpack this topic to discover whatever happened to the writer-artist in comics. You know, recently I was um, looking through my long boxes, you know, um, as I want to do. And it just seems like I really don't have a lot of time to do that these days. But, you know, when I was looking in them, man, you know, I was looking over my stuff and it hit me, you know, just something that uh, a thought I had rather, you know, um, just in terms of like, what happened to like the artist writer? You know what I mean? Like the artist writer that really came to prominence in like the late 70s on through mm -hmm. the 80s into the early 90s, you know, like, like. You know, creators like uh, Jim Starlin or a uh, Frank Miller, or John Byrne, you know, what I'm saying like, you know, these guys would jump on to mainstream books. Well, I shouldn't say jump on to, but they were put on to mainstream books and they had lengthy runs of like years in some cases. And, you know, in the mm -hmm. case of like Byrne, they would have multiple runs across both companies, you know, mm -hmm. and. And Simonson should be in there as well, obviously, for Thor. But I was thinking, like, in the early 90s, that started to dissipate, and you saw less and less of that. You know, you saw more of those, more creators, rather, just getting on to, like, special projects here and there, but really not committing to a, a, a year's run or whatnot. And I was curious as to, one, why is that, you know, in present day, and two, what were some of the conditions back in the day that allowed those particular creators to come to the fore and have those lengthy runs? You know what I'm saying? So I posited mm -hmm. that to you, well, to, to, to the fellas here. And um, that's what we're going to chop up here today, man. So, so yeah, man. Um, did you have any thoughts, um, Swizz, as far as, like, artist writers, like, starting from back in the day, like, as far as, like, the late seventies is really where a lot of this stuff was um, birthed from. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think, and you're talking about like mainstream right. comics and like commercial comics, uh, not necessarily like, you know, um, an independent publisher That's right. or some kind of a boutique publisher. Yeah. I don't know, man. I mean, as far I can remember when I was uh, a teenager reading comics, Probably Frank Miller on Daredevil was the first writer artist that I really became aware of. Mm -hmm. I was I was reading X Men and I knew there was kind of a brouhaha between Claremont and Byrne. Yeah, 
because John Byrne wanted to be credited as like a co-plotter or really like a co-storyteller, mm-hmm. you know, and Claremont would push back against that. And that was the first I'd ever kind of heard of like the, you know, the artist in comics, you know, wanting to, you know, kind of take, you know, the reins as far as storytelling, true, you know, the storytelling from the very, from the junk goes. But Miller was the first one where I was aware, like, wow, okay, this guy is, is doing, like, he's doing the damn thing on Daredevil. Yeah. I think, what was it, Roger McKenzie wrote that one issue? Yeah. Well, well he, he was writing several issues before that, and then it, it, it was like right. a, a sea change. It was like, 157, McKenzie was there, 158, <laughs> right? <laughs> sir, <laughs> sir, sir. <laughs> It was absolutely like that. Yeah. Where it was like, oh, wow, it's on, you know. And um, so much so that, um, well, like I said, that's when I really became aware of it. And so I started reading interviews with Miller, like in, you know, Comics Feature or Comics Journal or whatever. Yeah. And he, he was talking about Will Eisner, who I may have may have kind of understood who Will Eisner was. From the spirit, spirit, and you know, in the Warren magazines, and you know, having seen those, but never really like going back and really looking at them. Mm-hmm. And then Miller talking about Will Eisner and and all the homages and Daredevil to Will Eisner, and then realizing that Will Eisner comes from more of a cartoonist like ethic, you know, of writing and drawing, inking and and handling, you know, crafting the whole story himself. You know, the story being a singular vision from one individual. Yeah, right. Now. Of course, you know, Frank Miller on Daredevil, you know, he had an editor that he was collaborating with. He had eventually Klaus Jansen that he was uh, collaborating with. And uh, and I think eventually Lynn Varley was coloring it, right? Um, she didn't color did any she? of the Daredevils except for like... That's right. The last few issues. The last couple of issues, yeah, I yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, he had some collaborators, but for the most part, the story was being driven by him. So I, I remember that and I was like, oh, wow. And then... In that same era was uh, eventually when Howard Chaikin was commissioned uh, by First Comics and he started doing American Flag. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, okay, okay. And I knew Chaikin as a writer and artist because, you know, he was doing things in uh, Star Reach uh, and he had done, um, he did a Cody Starbuck, a painted Cody Starbuck uh uh, book maybe it was by byron price i can't remember no i think it was uh, those byron price books that was like empire um uh the and, stars uh, my destination the, flowers of, flowers the swords of, of heaven, heaven the flowers of hell yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. so you might be yeah. thinking of um he did a, a cody starbuck in a uh, heavy metal um uh, magazine that, that's what it was yeah. that's what it was that's what it was um and so you know now i'm really starting to kind of get it and then I'm all over the timeline, but then eventually John Byrne leaves X-Men and starts doing Fantastic Four. And he's writing and drawing Fantastic Four. It's like, oh, wow. Mm. You know, and he writes and draws Fantastic Four for about five years, maybe five and a half years. Uh, Nearly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It was about 81, 86, something like that. It's 87 right in there. It was a good long while. And, um, And then I even remember... So, like, even another change was, okay, so Byrne is now a writer-artist in my head. And then Mike Mignola goes to Dark Horse and gets ready to launch Hellboy. Mm-hmm. And he asks Byrne, he gives Byrne the plot and asks Byrne to script it. So, Byrne scripts, like, the first issue, maybe the first two issues or something. And and he's telling Mignola the whole time, you're a writer. This You've written the story. This is your story. You should just write it yourself. That's right. And then moving forward from there, that's what Mignola did. And then, you know, now we have, you know, years upon years of Mike Mignola, you know, writing for the Hellboy universe and for, you know, the, you know for other artists, you know, Duncan Fregredo, you know, whatever, um, as well. So I think those that's but I don't know what the conditions were. That brought that about because when you and I were discussing this as a potential topic, you brought up the point that, you know, for decades in the, you know, in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s and even the early 70s, you know, artists were never allowed really to write their own stuff, you know, very limited numbers. I mean, not not like a run like what you're talking about. It's almost like that mirrors more what's going on today. And, and you know, the, the, the crazy thing is, you know, 
when we were discussing that as well, and I brought up the example of, you know, the the big sea change, you know, when you think about it is in mm -hmm. 1970, Kirby jumps ship from Marvel to DC. You know, Carmine you Infantino go. is like, okay. yeah, come on over here. Kirby apparently was like, look, I'm out. I'm out. I'm, I'm helping to plot and create, you know, in many instances, a lot of these stories and characters. But everyone thinks mm -hmm. it's Stan, Stan Lee doing it. You know, and when mm -hmm. I'm, I'm having a, a hand in it, in some cases, a huge hand, you know. So Carmine's right. like, come on over here. And we'll let you do whatever you want. And I guess Kirby was like, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he came okay, in, all right. Yeah, yo, and Kirby came over there, kicked in the door, and it's announced on the front of the uh, first issue that he took over on Superman's pal, Jimmy Olsen. Kirby is yeah. here. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He's like, I'm here, dog. <laughs> right. <laughs> and and think about it. Think about it, man. When Kirby got there, he created so much stuff that he was the yeah. writer and the yeah. artist of. Oh my goodness. He took yeah. over Superman's pal, Jimmy Olsen, of course, but then he created the whole of the fourth world, New Guys, Mr. Miracle, Forever People, wrote and drew them. Omac mm -hmm. wrote and drew it. Our Fighting mm -hmm. Forces wrote and drew it. You know what I'm saying? Commandy wrote and drew Commandy. it. Commandy. Yeah, yo. So he, was, he went on a tear, you know? And he had a couple of one shots here and there that he didn't write, but he drew. Like um, mm -hmm. Joe Simon, you know, wrote um, a couple issues of uh, Sandman, you know, for him, you know, um, re re revitalizing that character for a little while that the two of them created, you know what I'm saying, from the mm -hmm. Golden Age. Um, but I mean, really beyond that, you know, he created all this stuff while he was there. And I'm curious as to why other. Uh, creators of his ilk, you know, didn't try to follow that example. Like you have them following, you know, their their um, certain wants outside of the mainstream. Like Gil King, you know, he had a, mm -hmm. a graphic novel called Black Mark, you know, uh, a barbarian mm -hmm. thing, if I'm not mistaken. And he had another thing called His Name Is Savage, <laughs> you know, right. stuff like that. But nothing. But that was the the Savage book was in the sixties, though, wasn't it? I think so. Like very late sixties. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. so you see, there are so you see the creators. They're like they want to reach outside of even if it's outside of the mainstream and do their own thing. But that regular mm -hmm. paycheck and you know them having to just do the art and get you know just keep the production flowing. You know, not everybody is as prolific as Kirby. You know, who, who was doing books on a weekend, you know, and just pumping them out. And for the most part, as big as a fan as I am of Kirby, they were, they were pretty good. There were some where you're like, yeah, yeah, this this this, yeah. this reads like a weekend <laughs> book, yo. Yeah. Yeah. But I still love yeah. this Kirby. But. Right, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> that's my boy. But um, you, it, it just got me to wondering from that huge example of Kirby in the early 70s at D.C., and also, when he came back to Marvel, you know, in the mid-70s, going into the um, end of the decade, he still took over books where he was writing and drawing it. Like, he took over right. um, Black Panther. Uh, he took over Captain America. Uh, he took over, I think he had to do the entirety of uh, 2001 Space Odyssey, uh, in which mm -hmm. there was a machine man. He created that, Devil Dinosaur. So it's like they were still giving Kirby. They said, just come on back on over here. And with your immense cartooning, and I'm speaking in terms of being an artist and a writer, you can really do some production here. And I'm just curious as right. to why more um, creators, you know, around his age, you know, didn't take that lead. But it was the Young Turks coming up like a Byrne, a Miller, a Jim Starlin and a Walt Simonson who were starting to embrace that in the mainstream and they were eventually given the keys to the kingdom, so to speak, to, you know, go forward. 
Right. Well, keep in mind in terms of time frame, and, and you know, and, and this may not track completely, but mm-hmm. you know, obviously Jack Kirby is the biggest fish in the small pond. Yeah. You know, in the seventies, there is no John Byrne, there's no George Perez, there's a Neil Adams that's starting to come to the fore, but he's he's the biggest name. He and Stan Lee and maybe Steve Ditko are the biggest, most known names in comic books for whatever that meant in the in that decade. Mm. And a lot of his peers, he and his peers, I mean, think about like Kirby was forty years old when he worked on the Fantastic Four, so he had already been working for twenty years. You know, more than twenty years, but he had, you know, he was twenty something years into into his career when he was working on the FF and all that stuff in the sixties. Yeah. So a lot of his contemporaries have been around a long time, and I've heard um, some of the uh, professionals. I've heard, you know, like Chaykin and um, and other people who were after Kirby, certainly after Kirby, mentioned that a lot of those old school creators, <clears throat> you know, some of them, you know. It was all good. Others could easily be intimidated by the editors. Mm. They were still freelancing while they're into their 40s and their 50s. You know, they had families. They were not trying to buck the system. They were not trying to to push against things. They wanted to just keep things going, and they wouldn't speak up for themselves. Yeah. I think Neil Adams has even talked about that as well. You know, they wouldn't speak up for themselves. And so, like you said, it took kind of the younger guard who came of age during the 60s and the 70s became young adults during the, you know, the eras of change and challenging the, uh, you know, the, uh, the establishment to come out and speak up. But you mentioned earlier Jim Starlin. And so he's kind of a prime example where in the late seventies, you see him, uh, drawing Captain Marvel. I don't think he wrote Captain Marvel. I think he collaborated with someone else, maybe Steve Englehart or somebody like that. Mm. I can't remember, but He's drawing Captain Marvel, and then he starts writing and drawing Warlock. Yeah. And a lot of the themes in Captain Marvel and the themes in Warlock, you know, it's space, it's 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 existential, it's philosophical, you know, it's it's otherworldly, very much in the vein of like a new war, a new gods, and and that you know that kind of thing. And certainly Jack Kirby had to be. I don't. I can't remember from our interview with uh, with Starlin. He had to have been an inter- influence on. Oh yeah. Starlin. And you see Starlin start to emerge in those late 70s, late 70s going into the 80s as a writer and an artist. And a good one, too. Mm-hmm. Like a guy with, with really interesting, provocative ideas um, and just like doing his thing, doing his thing. But um, so I don't know. I mean, like you said, you do start to see the next guard after that, you know, the people in the late 70s going into the 80s kind of wanting to do more. And, and, and I mentioned Howard Chaykin a second ago. He has never, never been uh, <laughs> uh, short on pointing out the fact that, you know, most of the writers and comics that he collaborated with, he found to be pretty crappy. Yeah. <laughs> and he was like, you know, he felt like he was smarter than they were. He was more, he was better read than they were. If, if they can do it, he can certainly do it. And he and, did. And, you know, yeah. that, and yeah, and he, he absolutely did, so. Yeah, and, you know, and the interesting thing about that too, Swizz, is, you know, as these artists, writers are coming to the fore, you see the sales start to rise. And I think the companies responded to that as well. It's like, okay, so we got this Miller kid on Daredevil and the sales and the success are increasing. The acclaim for this thing is increasing. Huh? Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, Burn, he's bouncing off of, um, he's coming off hot off Uncanny X-Men. He's asking to be put on, you know, Fantastic Four. Let's give it to him and see what happens. And very successful, long run, mm-hmm. you know, for him, you know. And then you also have Walt Simonson on Thor, you know. People know him from mm-hmm. Man- Manhunter with Archie Goodwin. And so he comes on, and he did a few issues of Thor um, before he took over with 337, you know. But once right. he took over with 337, that was it. It was on, right. you know, for like the right. next five or so years. And that's what I'm saying. Like, you really don't get those, um, those creators who are having those lengthy runs like you know as an artist writer like like those like those guys did and and those runs are fondly remembered i think you know for the most part because it's uh it's a unified vision or or rather a singular vision for the most part you know mm-hmm. the same person who's creating a plot and 
writing the script is the same person that's, you know, drawing it or penciling it. You know, it may not be the same person inking it, but it's the same person doing the, the bulk of the uh, writing and the uh, visual storytelling, you know? Yeah. 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 Um, I was going to say, so we mentioned Kirby and Jim Starlin, John Byrne on Fantastic Four, and then later on like Superman and Ma was a Man of Steel or Action Comics? Uh, both actually. Yeah. He was hot. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. But other examples... Again, mainstream flag, mainstream titles or flagship characters, mm. you know, you know, and in some cases, maybe secondary characters. But, you know, Matt Wagner did uh, Batman Faces. Uh, he also later on did Batman and the Monster Men. And he also did a uh, uh, a demons uh, saga saga. Uh, and it was just like on the cover. It was just the demon by Matt Wagner. Yeah, he did like, a Fortune miniseries. Yeah. Mm hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, Simonson, we mentioned. Uh, Mike Grell is another one that you and I talked about before we uh, when we were talking about this topic. You know, prior to Green Arrow, the Longbow uh, ish, uh, miniseries that he did later on, he wrote and drew Warlord. That's right. Good that's long right. Long. Yeah, yeah. He did for a good long good while. Catch. Yeah. Good and, catch. And that's really when I kind of became a fan of him. Um as an acolyte of, of Neil Adams in mm -hmm. many ways. And then, you know, he, he was a writer and he turned out to be a very good writer uh, later on doing like John Sable, which I really enjoyed. And then we talked about Dan Jurgens, and then also uh, George Perez um, was working on Wonder Woman and he was given the opportunity to write it like in the middle of the run. I forget what happened. The writer left or something. Yeah, Greg Potter ended up like, you know, something happened where they had to take him off and then Perez took over. Yeah. Yeah, and then Perez Perez took over, and he didn't do it for too too long. I think before uh, another writer came in and took over the script. But the interesting thing that I thought too was is, and this ties into kind of talking about the Image Comics founders and what they were doing in the mainstream before they actually left to kind of start their own, you know, start their own company. Yeah, you know, mo most of the writers and the artists that we're talking about, it, it, correct me if I'm wrong, they kind of worked up to, but not really into the speculator boom yeah well uh, like a lot of, like that first wave so to speak you know they were starting yeah. to have special projects outside of that so there were some even younger turks <laughs> that were coming up right yeah <laughs> <laughs> right 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 cue the uh the rod Sir, uh rod uh stewart song uh, you <laughs> young turks but uh but yeah, so that's kind of what I was thinking is, is, you know, McFarlane and Larson and all of them, they're still working for Marvel. And who, what, now, what were they working on at Marvel? You said they were writing and drawing some of their own books. And in some cases, I think coloring and inking them too or something. That's right. That's right. Like um, McFarlane, you know, obviously he came from Amazing Spider-Man and um, I think he was right. Eventually he was writing and, well, no, no, no. Dave, Dave Michelini was writing Amazing Spider-Man. But eventually, the success was really tied more to McFarlane to where Marvel gave him his own Spider-Man title, adjectiveless Spider-Man. Mm. And on that, Todd said, I'll write, uh, I'll draw it, uh, I'll ink it. And then for a couple of issues, he even colored it. <laughs> and then and just like, what in the hell are you doing? What? <laughs> leave, 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 leave the, leave the Ben Day dots alone. Leave that. <laughs> <laughs> Little panto colors alone, Todd. Stop it. But yeah, man, he was <laughs> writing, drawing it, and inking it, you know? And a lot of people forget, too, same thing with Rob Liefeld. Like, he started off with um, Louis Simonson was writing for him on um, New Mutants, but eventually it got to the point where he took over the writing duties. So he was mm -hmm. writing and drawing it, and in some cases, inking it. He had some anchors with him on there, but even still... And then Larson, he was writing and drawing uh, Spider-Man, adjectively Spider-Man, after McFarlane left, after McFarlane retired, you know, for about a year or so. So he was doing that. And then also, we were talking about on um, Uncanny X-Men where Byrne and Claremont were kind of butting heads about co-plotting and whatnot. Mm -hmm. Similar thing happened, you know, on Uncanny X-Men with uh, Jim Lee, you know, he wanted more of the co-plotting, you know, um, credit. And when Wills Protasio also took over on Uncanny also, you know, they wanted more co-plotting. Mm -hmm. So they're drawing the books, but they're also helping to uh, co-plot and create new characters for these storylines. 
Now they're not out and out writing, but they're co-plotting, you know? And right. I think that led them to, well, we're seeing all the success that Marvel is having, putting our names on the books, putting us on front street, you know, mm -hmm. to help sell these things. Shoot. Why, why don't we just do it ourselves? You know? And McFarlane right. was already ahead of the curve, him and Liefeld, and they were, you know, forming up image and got the rest of the guys to come along, you know? Mm. And so once they leave, there's this vacuum here that, you know, Marvel especially in particular, but also DC recognizes like, whoa, we kind of have a, a talent vacuum going on here. You know what I'm saying? Like seven of our mm -hmm. biggest creators, you know, who are writing and drawing these books in many cases, they're gone. So right. that vacuum starts to be filled by, you know, either actual just writers, not writer, artists, not artists, writers, just writers. But you do have mm -hmm. some that are still there in the mainstream doing it, like a Dan Jurgens, like you mentioned previously. You know, mm -hmm. he eventually takes over on the Superman title, you know, mm -hmm. on through Death of Superman and on through the, you know, rest of the decade, you know, for the most part, you know. But you'd be hard-pressed to find any examples, you know, in the um, early to mid-90s and on through the rest of the decade of, like, artists, writers in the mainstream. It's almost as right. if, and this is conjecture, but it's almost as if the big two said, that's not going to happen again. No, no, no. That, that's not going to happen again. We're not going to have a talent vacuum like that again. So... We're going to have just writers, just artists. We're going to make sure there's a delegation here and it stays strict. So, I, you know, I, we were I was thinking about that. And uh, and this is my last Howard Chaykin reference, but kind of going back to what you were talking about before with the co-plotting. Yeah. You know, Chaykin has, has gone on the record as saying that the artist in comics is always writing. They're, they're always contributing to the story. They're always... Adding to the narrative, making this, you know, making the story, uh, uh, you know, uh, pushing it forward, making yeah. it more propulsive, adding emotion, adding uh, humor, adding drama, melodrama, adding excitement. You know, they're always adding things to the story. So they are always writing in the in, in much in the same way. Like if a, if a writer says, OK, the character is six feet tall, has blonde hair, freckles and a droopy eye. If you draw that character, they've essentially influence the art right you know by giving you that descriptor so i mean it's it's you can see how the two you know definitely certainly co-mingle and and in the best comics you know that are collaborative that's what you get that's what happens but i was thinking about that too and i was like okay certainly after things crash and like you said there's there's this vacuum um th that could have been the mentality you know by the publishers to say hey you know we got to keep this from happening again mm-hmm um, and maybe even partially too, to kind of get the uh, the lines of production kind of reestablished. You know, it may have just been more of a of a business decision as well. Mm. Uh, for the most part, maybe even to say, hey, you know, um, if you have somebody who's writing and drawing and inking one book and you lose them, now you've got you've the books already solicited or the book is you know it's promised in whatever amount of days after that, you've got to hire now three people instead of one. So the idea of keeping those disciplines separate is probably was probably what, what was what was driving uh you know comics during the you know the forties and the fifties and the sixties. It's like no 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 keep these all separate. That way we can keep the books on time. Yeah. If someone is an an auteur and they're gonna write and draw and ink or whatever, well that takes time. Mm -hmm. And you know, back in the day it was always a page a day, you know, you can do like one book a month, twelve issues a year. I imagine now, and I could be wrong, but, you know, most of the artists that I know seem like they're on more like about a five or six week schedule per book. So now it's maybe closer to eight or nine issues a year that they can crank out. And that's just drawing it. Yeah. They may not even be inking it. That might just be drawing the book, you know, so I'm not sure. But then the other thing, um, like you were talking about with the uh, the focus on writers, you know, somewhere probably maybe I don't know in the late nineties, maybe the early two thousands or right at two thousand, is where we started to see more of the emphasis on writers. Oh yeah. And them kind of rising to, you know, ri rising to prominence as the stars of the books. Yes. Oh yeah. And I don't know if that was on purpose. I don't know if that was just how it 
kind of happened. But certainly, like you said, everything stayed kind of separate after that. I mean, there are certainly examples of writer-artists that we can think of through those periods. Sure. There have to be. But at the same time, it's, it's almost as if it was a cutoff point. Like from that point moving forward, they became fewer and fewer and, and fewer and far between. You know, and that, that is an excellent point, and that's and that's something that I definitely want to kind of bring up. Like, what's the what's the point of demarcation? You know, where we see that you know change start to occur. You know, and something else that may have contributed to that as well on the editorial side is you know consider this. You know, outside of like uh, Joe Quesada in the last mm-hmm. couple of decades, you really don't have artists who are editors. You know, like there used to be. You know, or even editors-in-chief. Like, think about it. Carmine Infantino, artist, became editor-in-chief over at DC in the early 70s. He brought Kirby over, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, Joe Kubert was an editor, you know, over at DC, obviously, in the late 60s on the war titles. Dick Giordano. Yes, thank you. Orlando. Yeah, quite a few. Yeah. Yeah, so you almost have, like, you know, there was a balance there. You know, you had... You know, writers on staff like a Julius Schwartz and so forth who handled, they were able to corral the writers. But when it came to like the art stuff, you had art, art centric editors who were able to say, no, 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 this, this layout does not work for this cover. You know, look at the composition here and so forth, you know. And I think because there was a lack of that, you know, in the last few decades, you know, Mm -hmm. start getting more the editorial, more balanced towards or unbalanced rather towards more towards writers, you know, rather than, you know, artists. And that might that may have contributed to the the paradigm shift, maybe. Perhaps so. Uh, But an example of an art centric editor at Marvel would be Carl Potts. Okay. You know, started as an artist and then eventually became an editor. And like you said, was calling the shots. So there's definitely a vacuum of that as well not a vacuum but just definitely that's missing as well like really casada is really kind of the only real name that you can think of mm. uh uh you know as far as an artist who becomes like an editor an editor-in-chief and a creative director etc oh hey hey man hey let's not forget about mark chiarello man yeah, yeah. man a uh, former guest of the show you know long time uh, obviously a long time illustrator painter you know mm-hmm. comic artist in his own right you know what i'm saying and, you know, he was the former, you know, former creative director over at D.C. I think um, he had actually become the senior vice president of art and design and um, the collected editions. But, you know, even when he was the editor, you know, you could see like his touch, you know, on the projects that he helmed, so to speak, that he put together. And, you know, he was one of those to where. You know, he was putting together projects and he would put together like the best artists, the best, you know, um, creative teams. Right. You know, he would make sure everything looked looked right. You know what right. I'm saying? As far right. as like it going out the door as a package. You know what I'm saying? So, yeah, definitely. Let, let's not forget about about Chiarello, man. For real. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, definitely. But um I don't know. I mean, it, it definitely did change. Uh, and I can kind of remember it like, you know, when I was maybe back when we started started the podcast back in 2007, 2008. Mm-hmm. And I remember it was like it was writers, right? It was Rick Remender. It was uh, Jeff Parker. It was Matt Fraction and uh, Jeff Johns. Jeff and, Lemire. And, oh, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Lemire. It was. Yeah, it was just tons and tons. Like the writers were the stars. Bendis, you know, Bendis's star was on the rise then. Oh yeah. Um, I mean, in a in a big way. And and a lot of those guys actually started out as artists. You know, That's Rick Remender true. was essentially an artist when he got started. Mm-hmm. Bendis certainly was. He was doing his own comics. You know, and that's kind of how how Marvel found him. Uh, yeah. I'm trying to think of some uh, maybe one or Ed, two Ed others. Brubaker. But Ed Brubaker was an independent artist. Yeah. Was he, he? Yeah. And then he started okay. writing stuff for Vertigo and then he hit with he hit big with Captain America and that was his mainstream thing right there. Yeah. Gotcha. 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 Well, I, I will say this. I think that um you know, the thing about the writer artist and probably around the time of like Starlin and and then getting into like, you know, uh Byrne and Frank Miller, etc. It's. It was such a unique thing 
at the time when I first started seeing it, I mean, it's hard, it's hard to put into words or it's hard to really kind of describe just how exceptional and sui generis it was, you know, for the person who's drawing the book to all of a sudden be writing the book or writing a book as well. And in certain cases, like with Starlin, you know, he would write for other artists. Yeah. And, you know, Chaikin would, of course, go on to write for other artists and so on and so forth. But, you know, the thing about it is, like, even now, so there are examples of, you know, well, let's start back. Let's go back to the 80s. Okay. John Byrne is is a popular artist. They want to keep John Byrne at DC. I mean, at Marvel. Okay. People are coming for the art. They might stay for the story, but the but the art is, is the lodestone. That's the thing that's bringing them in, right? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it, that was always my thing where I started to kind of see, like even in the 90s where I'd see some of the image guys and, some, and other people, and I was like, okay, this is pretty awful. <laughs> hey. You draw good, but this is pretty awful. <laughs> So, you know, that's why I really started to get kind of snarky about it back then where I was like, okay, you know, it's easy for an artist to say I'm a writer, Uh but you never see the opportunity go the other way where the writer says, I want to start drawing my own comic. That's right. You know, anybody who can sit down at at a keyboard at their computer or, you know, back in the day, a typewriter and type can say they're a writer. But, you know, you sit on at that drafting board or today at the Cintiq or whatever, and, and the, the tail of the tape is going to let us know very quickly whether or not you can draw or not. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, you know, if an editor says, hey, I want to get so-and-so on my book. Oh, he wants to write. Okay. He turns in the script. It could be great. He'd be like, you know, like a Rick Remender or a Jeff Park or whatever. You might, oh, this, you know, this person can actually write. Fantastic. It could be just okay, but if you're getting great art, and that's really what you want, then you're going to let them write. Does that really make them a writer artist? Or are they just, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's just a very easy set. It's much easier for writers to say, I mean, for artists to say, I'm a writer than it is for, art, you know, for writers to say, I'm an artist. You know what I mean? I, you know, and, and I get that. And, and, and I'm curious about that because, you know, you have to think about it like this as well. Like, already drawing a monthly comic book is an Iron Man, no pun intended, an Iron Man event in itself. You got to get out them right. 22, <laughs> 24 pages a month. You're drawing well over 500, 600 separate images. Well, maybe not that many. Right. But that's a lot. It's a shitload of images. Well, throw, throw in on top of that, you probably got to do a cover. Yep. Or they may bring in someone else who's kind of like a stunt cover artist because you can't. Well, I mean, you may not have time. You just may be beat the fuck out. But, you know, but the thing is, is the artist. I mean, aside from the story, the artist is wearing so many other hats. You've yes. got to be the, the costume designer. you got to do hair and makeup. You've got to co-cast the book. You've got to do set 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 design, do prop lighting. design, yeah. character design, lighting. You've got to be the cinematographer. You got to be, you got to wear like ten different hats. <laughs> so yeah, I could, I, and that's why, like, I'm thinking, like, when you're talking about like keeping the division of labor separate, it could just be a simple business decision. In business, let's say you want to have a million dollars worth of revenue. Okay. Your best bet is to try to have 10 $100,000 customers. Yeah. That way, if you lose one, you still can keep the doors open and try to replace them. But you can live off of the $900,000 that's left. If you got one $900,000 customer and then one $100,000, guess what happens if the $900K customer leaves? You're shit out of luck. So it's much harder to, to replace them. When all the duties, all the disciplines are being lumped on one person, what, what if they get sick? What if they go through a fit of depression because they get a divorce? What if they die? Mm-hmm. You know, you know, uh, then that's it. So you've got to replace all those people and try to recoup. And it's just tough to do. It, it, and it could be. But I keep thinking of Byrne is like the biggest populist example of that artist writer in the 80s. You know, obviously we know about Fantastic Four, but don't forget he was also writing and drawing a two years run, a two years run of Alpha Flight. Uh, he was doing the thing. <laughs> he was writing and drawing that for a few issues. <laughs> he was doing so much that you're just like, wow. 
How was he? How was he able to do well, all of that? But keep in mind now, going back to what you were saying about Kirby, mm-hmm. that's when that this sh- shit start getting a little wonky, yo. That's when it was like, ah, uh, the wheels on the cart start wobbling a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, you know, you get that buggy at the grocery store with the bad wheel on it, and it starts shaking. <laughs> oh, something ain't right. Something ain't right. <laughs> So, you know, that's when, you know, and really and truly, like, that's when Burns started really relying more and becoming a quite a bit more formulaic than he had been in the past. Mm, mm. You know, when he got into the Superman era, there was there was only about a, a thimbles full of difference between his formulaic approach and Kurt Swan's formulaic approach. They got the same way. character. Yeah. Them panels were the same. Them them <laughs> shots were the same. You know? <laughs> you know, and that's and that's really the only way you can do it. I mean, in today's, you know, in today's market, you do have some guys and, and maybe gals, I don't know their names, but I mean, you've got occasionally you do have uh Francesco Francavilla or a Mike Norton who could draw and ink two books a month. Yeah. But them motherfuckers are unicorns, yo. Yeah, or, or or Mark Bagley as well, and I, yeah. I I guess that's 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 the crux of it, isn't it? You know, at what point do you reach to where you're able to you know be prolific enough, but formula starts to seep in, and I can only imagine as a um, artist writer, you know, doing these lengthy runs, how many times are you going to bring a certain character back? You know, how many times are you going to kind of rehash that storyline you know go back over right. it right. you know what i'm saying right. yeah and that's one right. of the dangers as well when you're working on a mainstream book as an artist writer is that especially today now that more people are more savvy about the business of comics it's like well i'm not i'm not, I'm not creating a new character Mm-mm, no way right. unless you offer me participation right. so i'm gonna keep bringing back characters from the past but it's like if you're if you were to be the um, artist writer on Doc, um, Fantastic Four, how many times are you going to keep bringing back Annihilus or Doctor Doom? You know, <laughs> yeah, it, it, uh, yeah. Burn did it tons. You know, right. he had to get the book right. out. Yeah, right. And I think also too, like so. Let's say you know Burn in the eighties on Fantastic Four, and then eventually on like Superman and Man of Steel. Yeah, and all of that. We're still only talking about 20 years, 20 plus years into the Marvel Renaissance, mm. into the Marvel Golden Age from the, the inception of the inception of Spider-Man and Fantastic Four. We're only 22 decades in. So that stuff is still fresh and vital and, uh, uh, you know, as as, you know, as soil to toil and and. and and put seed, your own seeds in, you know. Yeah, this I'm putting my squash down, but I'm mixing the squash with the zucchini. I'm gonna make a squash kini. You know what I mean? Like, you know, that soil is still fresh. Yeah. Now we're even 20, 30 years past that now. So it's like, you know, like we, you know, Dwight has mentioned a couple of times on the show about how much he's enjoying Hickman's new X-Men. Yeah. I can only imagine, I mean, Hickman must have put all that shit in a blender. And then threw in some wheat germ, and then threw in something else. Because you're talking about Dwight, who is like you know one of the biggest longtime X Men fans of all, and he's super into the book. Yes, yeah. So Hickman must be doing the damn thing, and he's another one who started out kind of as a as an artist mm-hmm. uh, with nightly news, and um, he actually did some anthology stuff for Marvel, I think. Yeah. Before he started just really seemingly just kind of writing. Period. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I don't know, man, you know, comics is a, um, I mean, it's, it's kind of trite to say comics is a visual medium. Of course it is, Mm. but you know, the analogy to make, to comparing it to film would be, and I, you and I talked about this before, Yeah, you know, in a film, if you take away the sound, right, Mm -hmm. take, take away all the sound. There are no subtitles. There's no, you know, there are no cards coming in like the old silent movies to tell you what the dialogue is. You still have a film. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a, it might be a pretty quiet, intimate experience, <laughs> but it's still a film. Yeah. And comics the same way. If you take the words out of a comic, 
it's still a comic. But if you take the pictures away, it's just like a weird story without very much description in it. Yeah, yeah, you right. You know what I mean? It just, it's just, it doesn't feel like a comic at all when you take that part away from it. Mm-hmm. So, um, and the script in movies and the script in comics, you know, they're never meant to be, you know, finished documents that you read and cherish and, you know, put them online and people download them, whatever. It's really just supposed to be, this is what I'm trying to say so that we can get to the finished product. It's just supposed to help everybody working along the way get to the finished product. So the colorist knows what time of day it is so that the artist knows what time of day it is, you know, so that the inker knows, you know, what this is supposed to look like. And there's a reason why the jacket is supposed to look like tweed. So draw it and ink it. So it looks like tweed that plays into the story. Yeah. But, so, you know, the artist is super important, but so let's talk a little bit about some of the, uh, the artists, uh, the writer artists that we have today. Um, I mean, and I thought about this, you and I talked a little bit about it, but mm-hmm. you know, certainly, you know, Mike Mignola, you know, starting back sure. in the, uh, was, I guess the nineties. Yeah. Yeah. Very early. 90s. Boy? Yeah. Very early nineties. Um, and, and, it, and let me make a distinction. So you've got, some writer artists who work kind of outside of the mainstream on, on special projects and on things. They're not on like Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, Spider-Man, Thor. They're not necessarily on those books. Right. Right. Yeah. Or you have them writing for other artists to draw the books. So you have Mignola, who's an artist and a writer, but he writes books for people who work in the Hellboy universe. You have uh, Becky Cloonan, who's probably, you know, a 15 going on 20 year veteran now in comics. Mm-hmm. And she's writing a Punisher book. Uh, right. That's now. right. Yeah. Um, Scotty Young, you know, did the Wizard of Oz stuff. He did I Fairyland over at Image. And he's writing a Deadpool book that uh, Nick Klein is, uh, uh, is drawing. I think they're still doing it. I'm not sure. OK. But I remember when it was announced and I, I remember seeing it. Um. um Oh, uh, uh, Ming Doyle. Ming oh, Doyle really? is writing uh, Constantine with Riley Rosmo. Oh, wow. Okay. Riley Rosmo's doing the art, and she, yeah, and she's writing the book. And then, uh, you know, and then again, like you've got James Heron who's doing Ultra Mega over at, uh, over at Image. Uh, we mentioned Rick Remender, started out as an artist and kind of writes. Jeff Parker um, was doing Ages of Atlas and uh, X-Men. But, you know, again, kind of started out pretty much as an artist. And now I think they both mostly kind of write now. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, I was thinking in, in, in uh, contemporary um, terms, you know, there are a, a couple of artist writers that, you know, really uh, spring to mind. The one that really springs to mind that I would say, for, in my opinion, had like a huge, huge, huge impact would be the late Darwin Cook, you know. Right. I mean, he right. came in doing that um, Batman ego one shot, and then the next thing you know, he's doing the New Frontier and pew, Supernova. Well, didn't he do a, a Catwoman book with? Was it Brew Baker? He he did. Uh, I know he did Selena's big. That's right. That's right. Was that with Brew Baker or did he write that? I I almost want to say I just want to say somebody wrote that for him. Yeah, if I'm okay. not mistaken. Yeah, but he but also like you did said, a, he did a regular series. That's what you're talking about. Okay, you're right. You're right. So I did okay. write the regular series for him, and then right. it was but DC Selena's the big score was his, and then it was New Frontier, and then it was the Spirit. You know, later on after that, the Spirit, and you know, of course, the Parker books. Yeah. Um, and then unfortunately, you know, he passed, but he probably was the last really like true blue writer artist like he went on to continue to write and draw and write and draw and write and draw until his last you know until his you know his unfortunately his last day yeah um and even scotty like scotty did um uh he did a uh maybe about Six, seven, eight years ago, he did like a Rocket Raccoon miniseries over at Marvel. Oh, he sure did. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that was, and it was before the Guardians movie, as a matter of fact. Oh, it was before the Guardians movie. And um, but I mean, you know, again, he's kind of works on his own projects, writing and drawing, and then seems like he's kind of starting to write for other people now. But 
I don't know, man. Um, another one, I guess, was um. Well, I, well, I was gonna bring up uh, one that I think a lot of people gloss over. Unfortunately, is uh, Cal Baker. Yeah. 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 I mean, yeah, absolutely. Long run on Plastic Man, you know, and other um, projects, and then obviously outside of that, that's all he does is right, right, and draw his own material. Nat Turner. Yeah. And the Bakers, any number of things. Like he's a one Why man production crew. Yeah, man. Absolutely. Mm, exactly. Exactly. And he's um, he's a guy that I think kind of comes again from that cartoonist like work ethic. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, like his heroes seemingly would be those kinds of uh, of creatives. But um, in addition to that, you know, uh, Daniel Warren Johnson, mm. you know, he did Wonder Woman Dead Earth, which was, uh, I think, a four issue miniseries. And they collected it into a trade. And then uh, Sean Gordon Murphy. Oh, yeah. Uh, Batman White Knight. Mm -hmm. You know, Batman White Knight. Of course, Murphy has illustrated, you know, a bunch of other things. And he also, you know, wrote in uh, and drew Punk Rock Jesus for Vertigo. Mm, mm. But as far as as far as the mainstream, it was Batman White Knight, which I guess was like a special project if you're talking about a miniseries. Um, and then former guest on the show, Trad Moore. Oh, yeah. Uh, Luther of Luther Strode fame and uh and and others. Um, he did a short story in uh, the Amazing Spider Man, like an Amazing Spider Man that he wrote and drew as well. Ah, all right. But. So there are examples of it happening, but again, it just seems like that division of labor just kind of maintains. And and I can only imagine, like I said, it's, it's got to be for business reasons that, um, that that's the case. But I just got to say, man, I just remember as a kid, like, again, you know, reading interviews with the Frank Millers and with mm. the Howard Chakins and the Jim Starlins and even the John Burns. Um, and others too, you know, Bill Sienkiewicz, you know, wrote and drew things later on, you know, after he left Moon Knight and, and, and New Mutants, you know, he did, he did projects. Right. Um, you know, Miller did other things after that where, you know, he wrote Born Again for, uh, David Mazzucchelli, he wrote, uh, Batman Year One. Right. Uh, yeah. and then he actually came back and did Electra Lives Again, mm -hmm. you know, as a, uh, as a standalone, uh, uh, project, but there just was nothing like that because it was... It was just magical to me. It was just really like, you know, and, and I and I guess for myself as a young, you know, kind of wannabe artist, you know, I loved comics, but I was like a big Mad Magazine fan. So I knew that, you know, Don Martin and uh, Dave Berg and uh, Mort Drucker, you know, they were writing these stories with these gags and um you know, Charles Schultz. I was a big fan of Charles Schultz and um, um, uh, uh, King, uh, Bill King. Oh, yeah, Family Circus. And yeah. uh, Family Circus. You know, I was a big fan of that. So when I started to see that happening in comics, that's kind of what I thought. I was like, oh, it's like cartoonists. It's like these guys are cartoonists. Um, and I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm I was over-romanticizing it, you know, no. at the time. But I just... I remember feeling that way and, and feeling really kind of, uh, you know, elated by, you know, by the idea that, you know, that that the writer and the artist were one and the same. And, and of course, became a big fan of Will Eisner uh, along Absolutely. the way, too. And, and, you know, the thing, too, Swiss, is that a lot of those runs, many of those runs, you know, done by the artist writer still hold up very mightily. And I, I don't know if I would put my finger on exclusively because it's coming from one person as far as like the storytelling and the scripting, you know, mm -hmm. but there is, there is something to that, you know, maybe there is something intangible, you know, that I'm missing, but there is something to that. Like earlier today when we were, you know, uh, before recording and, you know, we were talking about Kirby, you know, just to kind of get our facts straight and everything, man, I, I went to my box and I got out my whole thick section of Kirby and I have nothing but fourth <laughs> world, all of that early 70s stuff, DC stuff for Kirby. And bruh, mm -hmm. I got to tell you, flipping through those pages, it's like you can see the the, the power crackle off of them. You know, you can see like yes. the breath yes. of his talent. You know what I'm saying? And, and I get that same rush when I read like, I can't tell you how many times I've read Miller's Daredevil. I can't tell you how many times I've read like Burns Fantastic Four, all them joints. All them issues. Mm. 
and wow, they still okay. are fresh. They still are like, man, they they they, they like a they like a warm bowl of macaroni and cheese. Just some comfort food. It's like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. This is yeah. oh man, this 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 hits the spot every time. And I and I wonder if in some way it's because of that storytelling visually and the scripting coming from that one person for the most part over a long run. So you have a chance to start a storyline here and pay it off in uh, 12 issues. You know what I'm saying? And you can see them grow and mature and print. Their writing gets better. Their composition, their storytelling matures, you know, and you just don't find a lot of that in contemporary comics where you basically have to come to it fully formed. You know, you could do stuff outside of the mainstream, you know, independently or whatnot. But when you hit the stage, there's no time to grow up in print. You got to come to it. Bam. Print ready. You know what I'm saying? Right. Showtime. Showtime, baby. And there's just something to that. (laughs) There's just something to that, to seeing like those um, artist (laughs) writers back in the day being so precocious against since them page by page, issue by issue, feeling out their talent. You know, they know that they can draw a bit, but finding their sea legs on the writing, it was just a magical thing to see. And it still is, man, for real. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and the thing is, is whether you're a, a solo creator, you know, you're a, a person who gets on stage with an acoustic guitar and a microphone and you sing, anybody who endeavors to do anything creative can fail. Yeah, oh yeah. But certainly, they're just there's just a cohesion that you just have to pray actually happens when you're collaborating with other people. That's that's why so many films fail. You're talking about 100, 200, 500 people all trying to collaborate to make one vision. How does mm. that even happen? So the fact that we get good films that come from that mode is almost in spite of the process because you can't hardly get five people to agree on anything, let alone 500. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because everybody's got their own agendas. You know, some people it's a paycheck. Some people I'm trying to just whatever. You just never know. And so in comics, you know, perhaps it's a thing where, you know, under the best circumstances, you know, the writer and the artist and the inker and the colorist are all working towards the same vision. And you do get something really spectacular, like what you got on X-Men with Claremont and and Byrne and Terry Austin and, Mm. you know, the various colorists um, that worked on the book. But maybe what you're thinking about in terms of the, the, the solo person is, let's say if it's just one person who's writing and drawing it, maybe subconsciously, maybe on some, you know, some other level, <laughs> you're getting more of a sense of who they are because they're doing more than one part of the process. I think so. Yeah. You're getting more of a peek into John Byrne's brain as a writer and an artist than you would if he was just the artist. Mm-hmm. You know, same thing with Frank Miller. You know, we got a peek into Frank Miller's brain. In some cases, ah, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're right. You're right. I came front. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? You're like, oh, maybe it was better not knowing. Shit. Uh, <laughs> but you know what I mean? Uh, yeah. You you truly, like for instance, with a Will Eisner, you did get a sense of who Will Eisner was sure. because he was writing and drawing. He was telling the entire story himself. Now, that could be a good thing or that could be like a piss poor shitty thing. You know, I don't think George Perez was the greatest comic writer in the world for the short time that he wrote on Wonder Woman, but he did it. Yeah. You know. Uh, and he got through it. So, uh, and even like some of the image guys, I mean, some of them created great characters that live on today. Some of them wrote great stories, you know, uh, and then some of them wrote crappy stories. You know, it just doesn't work out for everybody, you know, even though they were all at the helm, it was like, okay, we're, we're, you know, using my, with, you know, my, uh, my point a minute ago. We got way inside Rob Liefeld's brain. Was that a good place to be? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Just one good, one long guitar solo. I, yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't know. You know, one 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 big long underwear ad. You know, with a surfer dude. You know, I don't. I don't know. You know, so.
That concludes this episode of Sidebar Forever, hosted by Dwight Clark, Swain Hunt, and Adrian Johnson. You can find us online at sidebarforever.com. Any emails or questions can be directed to us at sidebarforever at gmail.com. And also, subscribe to us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram.